What would you give to know the future? Would your life change very much if you knew what was going to happen? Would your faith change? Some people are so desperate to know the future that they will try almost anything to find out. They will look to astrology, which says that the positions of the, the planets in the sky can predict your, your future. Others will look for, for signs. Others try to control the future through superstition, leading, among other things, to some pretty terrible-looking beards during hockey playoffs. And we don't do that sort of thing, I hope, I assume. But many of us would probably love to predict the future. And some of us do our best to by, by keeping track of every, every current event and all the things that are happening in politics to try to predict what's going to happen next in our, in our country, in our life. But others of us are the opposite. We say, don't talk to me about politics. I don't worry about the future. I can't control it anyway, so I just ignore all of that. And I don't worry about anything to do with the future. I, I just focus on today. Well, the Israelites in our text, they get a glimpse of, of their future, what their future is going to be like when they send out 12 men to spy out the land. And it's interesting to ask ourselves this why they needed to send out the spies. Did they really need to know what the land looked like? God has, in fact, already told them what it looks like. He promised them that it's a, a rich and prosperous land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they already have God's promises. Well, now they're going to find out. Do God's promises match reality? And what will they do about the the difference, or if it is in fact the same. Will it change things now that they know their future? And we probably often have the same question. We have many promises from God ourselves, promises of His love and His forgiveness and His presence, promises of blessing. Do God's promises match the reality of your life? And, and what do you do about the answer to that question? What is your faith like? We'll see that this afternoon as I proclaim God's word to you from this chapter about God's promises versus real life. And we'll see how that works as the Israelites spy out the promised land. And we'll see it as we go through the chapter and we see how the spies are sent out, what the spies find, and then what the spies report about their findings. So firstly, let's see what we learn from when the spies are sent out. Verse 1 of our chapter tells us that the Lord commanded Moses to send men to spy out the land of Canaan. And this is, of course, true. But if you also read Deuteronomy chapter 1, you will find out that the idea to send spies first came from the people of Israel. They proposed the idea to Moses, and the idea seemed good to Moses. And then, the, and then what happened after that is that the Lord made it into a, a command. So it was really the people's idea first. And so why would the people want to spy out the land? Well, of course, they were curious. They were wondering what the land was like that they were about to inherit. They were wondering what the, it, its inhabitants would be like. Who wouldn't be in their situation? But in Deuteronomy, the Lord is actually angry with, with Moses for, for agreeing to this idea of sending out spies. And given how everything turned out with the spying, we can also assume pretty easily that the Israelites were a little bit suspicious. They didn't really trust the Lord's word about the promised land. They wanted to see it for themselves. And they wanted to hear a report from their own people 
rather than just trust the, the words of the Lord. And there's a lesson here for us as well. The Lord doesn't want us to go through life with our eyes closed, not wearily planning things, not worrying about the future. The Lord does want us to use our eyes and our minds to, to be wise, to be prepared, to plan for the future, to use the brains and the gifts that he has given us to, to live wisely. But we also do not know exactly what is going to happen. And so God also wants us to live out of faith. Faith, as you may remember from Hebrews chapter 11, is being sure of what we cannot see. And so we do not need to spend lots of energy trying to predict the future or trying to figure out the Lord's particular plan or to spend mental energy being anxious about the future. Be wise about what you do know, but don't worry about what you don't. And the people of Israel, they, they were uh, a little bit too anxious about the future. That's probably why they wanted to send out the spies. And despite the fact that the Lord is not happy about it, yet he still, in our chapter, commands them to send out the spies. And we might ask ourselves, why? Well, perhaps it is to teach the Israelites about the importance of being prepared to, to have a, a plan as they go into the land of Canaan. But it was also a test it was a test to see whether the Israelites did, in fact, listen to the Lord. If they truly trusted him and his promises. What would they do when they met, uh, met the hard reality of what the promised land was like? And so God commands and Moses, in obedience, sends out 12 men, one from each tribe, to spy out the land. And the beginning of the chapter emphasizes that he didn't just send out any random people. He sent out leaders, the heads of the tribes. And their names are listed for us in the verses 4 through 16. Their names are, are remembered for all of the history. And have you ever daydreamed about that? About being famous? About your name being remembered? Maybe if, even though you're an adult, if you, if you did something good in, in high school, you, you won some sort of athletics trophy or, or academic trophy, you probably still remember it to this day. We remember when, when our name meant something, when, when, when people recognized us. We all want our name to be remembered for something special. Well, these 12 men, Shamua, Shafat, Palti, and the rest of them, they got their wish. They are famous. And you can imagine how excited they must have been to be named by Moses as, as the, the 12 men of all the, the thousands of the Israelites to be sent off to spy out the land. They're, how proud their families must have been as they, as they marched off to, to go and spy it out. They are famous. Their names will be remembered for all time. But as we know, for 10 of them, their names are not remembered with fondness. These ten men led Israel astray, as the text says, with a bad report about the land. They are the first amongst the Israelites to distrust the Lord and his promises, to ignore his power and his provision. And they are, in a sense, the ringleaders of the disaster that will follow in, in chapter 14. And the architects of Israel spending 38 more years in the wilderness and the death of their entire generation. And so their names are not remembered with pride and with fondness. They are remembered with in, in infamy and shame. And it is a common human emotion to, to want your name to be remembered. But our text warns us that if you become famous while abandoning the Lord, 
your name for eternity at least, if not in this life, will be remembered in shame and in infamy. And it's a reminder that all of our actions ought to be in, in honor and praise of the Lord. They must not be like the, those ten spies, doing what is right in our own eyes or, or seeking the praises of people. If you act to praise people, if you act to please a, a crowd, you might be remembered, but it will be for all the wrong reasons. On the other hand, if any of us are following the Lord, are faithful to His promises and His word, you might not be the head of your tribe. You might never be famous in the world. You might not even get a huge recognition, amount of recognition by others in the church. But the Lord promises that He will remember you forever and that He will give you a gracious reward in the next life. And so it is faithfulness to the Lord that is important now and eternally, not the praises of people. And our Lord Jesus is an exa- a wonderful example of this. During his ministry, he was obviously pretty famous and well-recognized and remembered. But, but before he went around the land of Israel for three years teaching and, and doing miracles, he spent 30 years of his life in obscurity not seeking fortune, not seeking fame, just humbly serving the Lord as a carpenter and taking care of his family in a small town in the middle of nowhere. And even during his ministry, Jesus frequently asked the people not to spread around his fame and the the things that he had done because he didn't want to be worshipped as some sort of magician healer. He didn't want to be famous for the wrong reason. And of course, Most humbly of all, our Lord Jesus Christ accepted on himself the burden of our sins and so took upon himself rejection by both God and people as he died on the cross. And so he he took on himself the punishment that we deserve. And it's hard for us to understand today just how despised the cross was in his day. It was the death penalty for the lowest scum of society because it was torturous, because it was shaming and publicly humiliating. And yet he willingly accepted the shame and humiliation because he loved us. And so we are called out of love for our Lord Jesus Christ to love others, to to put others ahead of ourselves. Above all, to humbly serve the Lord in our life, even if we will not necessarily get fame in this life for it. If hardly anyone remembers your name, the Lord does. And verse 16 focuses on one particular name, the name of Hoshea, the son of Nun. And it tells us that Moses changed Hoshea's name to Joshua. And this is actually the only time that he's referred to by his original name that his parents gave him, Hoshea. He's been called Joshua even in, earlier in the book of Numbers. Hoshea means salvation. Well, Joshua adds the the short form of the Lord's name to the the front to make it explicit that it is the Lord who saves. And there's a sad irony, actually, in the fact that Joshua's change of name is remembered here in this chapter. We'll see in the next chapter that, that Joshua lived up to his name. He joined Caleb and Moses and Aaron to plead with the people to remember the Lord, to trust in the Lord. That, that the Lord will save his people from giants and help them to conquer the land. The Lord saves, Joshua reminds the people. 
And of course, Joshua points ahead to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given the same name, although in Greek, Jesus. His name doesn't just mean the Lord saves, but Jesus was himself, Savior and the Lord, who saves us from all of our sins. And so the Israelites would have been saved so much grief and misery if they had listened to Joshua's advice, but most of all, if they'd listened to his name. The Lord saves. We can trust in the Lord. There's no need to worry. And so we today subject ourselves to so much misery and trouble when we forget the name of Joshua, but of course, especially as when we forget our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord saves. In all of our struggles, in all of our sins, in all of our anxieties, we come to the Lord, and the Lord will save us from all of them through Jesus Christ. Because he came to give his life and to save his people, us, from all of our sins. And that takes us to our second point, what the spies find in the land of Canaan. As he sends out the spies in verse 17, Moses commands them to spy out the land very carefully. He tells them that they have to carefully examine the land to find out whether the people are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And so look at the land itself. Is the land good or bad? Is it it rich and prosperous for crops or, or is it a desert? The cities, what are they like? Are are they small little country towns made up of ramshackle buildings or are they massive fortified cities? And to bring back some of the fruit of the land with them. And the spies do an excellent job, actually, in spying out the land. Our text tells us that they travel throughout the entire country. They begin from Israel's camp in the wilderness of Zin, which is outside the southern border of the land of Canaan. They travel all the way through the land up to Lebo Hamath, which is on the, the far northern border. And they carefully spy out all the different groups of people that are living there, finding out where the, the various Canaanite nations are, are living. They also find the descendants of Anak, we are told, living in Hebron. They're the giants. And they do bring back some of the fruit of the land. It's early in the grape harvest, says verse 20. So it's around August. And they bring back pomegranates and figs. And they bring back a single cluster of grapes that's so large it needs to be carried on a pole between two of them. And these grapes are so remarkable that the place where they are found is named Valley of of Cluster of Grapes. Or Valley of Eshkol. So that these grapes these particular grapes will be remembered by the Israelites for forever. And the spies, as they travel throughout the land, they find exactly what they should have expected to find. They find Canaanites, the various Canaanite nations. And they also find that the Canaanite nations are strong and, and warlike. And that's no secret. There are seven Canaanite nations crowded in the very small land of Canaan. And so these nations are constantly at war with each other. And so their, their people, their armies are strong. Their cities are fortified and, and well defended. And their armies are well trained. It was also no secret that the land was populated by giants. The Anakites were also known as the Rephaim. And in Genesis 15, when, when Abraham had first arrived in the, in the land of Canaan, the Lord had already told him that the Rephaim lived in the land that he would give to Abraham's descendants. And they also ought to have expected a, a luscious land full of good crops. Because God has often referred to the land of Canaan as a land of milk and honey, a rich and, and prosperous land. 
And so they found exactly what they should have expected to find. And yet, the reality of it seems to have surprised and shocked them. And it certainly shocked the rest of the people of Israel. And doesn't this often happen to us as well? God gives us great promises, and He tells us what to expect, and yet when it comes, we are often surprised. When God's promises are fulfilled abundantly, we often can't believe our eyes. So, for example, when we have committed especially terrible sins, we often find it hard to believe that God would actually forgive us, that God would love one such as us. But it is the truth. We are his covenant children. And God has promised us that because of Jesus, he will no more remember our sins or our lawless deeds. And so we can trust these promises of God, even when it seems unlikely to us, not because we deserve God's forgiveness and his promises, but because he has promised them to us and he is a faithful God. And God also promises that our life is not always going to be sunshine and roses. He promises us that we will have hardship, that we will face sickness, that we will face loss, that we will struggle sometimes, that we'll face persecution. And yet when these things happen to us, our first reaction is often to to get upset, to get anxious, to get frustrated, even to get angry at the Lord sometimes. How can God let this happen to me, we say. But again, God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And so when God's promises are fulfilled in our life, we ought not to get angry, anxious. We instead should remind us of the Lord's promises. That yes, he has promised us hardship, that life's not always going to be easy, but he has also promised that he will always support us and carry us through life. And he will give us the strength to face the difficulties that he brings on our path. And so do the Israelites, do the spies, Remember this, as they face the, rea- the hard realities of the land of Canaan that the Lord has promised that they will find. Well, we see that in our third point, the report of the spies. The spies spy out the land for 40 days, which is a sim- significant number for Israel. It's a, it's a number of fullness. And so what that tells us is that the spies, uh, they spied out the entire land. They, they fulfilled their, their task well. And then they present what they have found to the whole congregation. And their report is sort of a good news, bad news situation. You can imagine them kind of starting with that, with that phrase. Because they say, yes, the land is flowing with, with milk and honey. In, uh, in verse 27, it is a, it is a good land, and, and here is its fruit, and they present those, those massive grapes. And yet they say the people are strong, the, the cities are fortified and very large, there are giants there, and they describe how the Canaanite nations are well dispersed and well entrenched in the various areas of the land. And at this point, as they present their, their findings, In a sense, the spies haven't done anything wrong. They've made a very accurate report after they've spied out the land well. It is true. The harvest is prosperous. The people there are strong and fearsome, and they have giants. That's the honest truth. But that's where they they stop their words. And the thing is that God has indeed warned them before that the land of Canaan is populated with a fearsome people and with giants, but he has also promised that he will drive them out. 
And this is the part that the spies do not include. And their omission speaks volumes. They're clearly implying, as they present their findings, that we can't do this. And their report causes the people to start grumbling. And so in verse 30, Caleb is forced to to quieten the people down. And he adds what the ten spies should have added themselves. He says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He's, he's not saying that the, that the spies' report is wrong. Trusting in the Lord doesn't mean pretending that life is going to be easy. And there are Christians today who, who quote Philippians 4, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, and, and assume that indeed, if God is truly faithful, then my life is going to be easy, and I will have a, an easy time destroying any small obstacles that he puts in my way. But the rest of the Bible, including Philippians 4, tells us that, that we, God is telling us that he will give us strength not to have an easy life, but to endure the hardships and the obstacles that he puts in our path. That, that we can do anything for the sake of Christ. We can endure even hardship and suffering. And so it's fine for the spies to say, look, this is going to be hard. The people of the land are strong, but the Lord is with us. And so no matter how strong they are, in the Lord we are stronger. And their silence implies a lack of faith. And in verse 31, they actually declare outright what it is that they are thinking. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And again, in a sense, they're telling the truth. Humanly speaking, the people of Canaan are stronger and mightier and more fearsome than the Israelites. They're literally bigger because they're giants, they're well-trained in war, they have fortified cities, and the Israelites have barely fought a day in their lives. They've been a country of, of slaves. So it's true, humanly speaking, that the Israelites are weaker, but humanly speaking is not the end of the story. God is with them. And so they, as Joshua said, they would easily be able to overcome these problems. And it's easy for us to look down on the Israelites and for their lack of faith and for how they ought to have known better, which is true. But the truth is that we too often find it very hard to to face up to the difficulties in our life with firm faith and confidence in the Lord. It's it's easy to trust in the Lord when the, the situation is clearly in our favor. But it's hard to trust in the Lord when the situation seems hopeless. We say things like, how can I ever get out of this? As if it depends on us. Or even we might say, how can God possibly rescue this situation? Because it seems impossible to us, and we can't imagine how God can fix things. But God is not limited by our power and our understanding. And so it's fine, like the spies, to to accurately sum up a situation. And, And we might find ourselves doing that today, too. The sexual morality of our world continues to decline at an alarming rate. And we might wonder, how can we Christians stand up to this? In fact, how many in the church are not exposed to and even deliberately indulging in the pornography and the sexual lusts of the world? And and how will this work out in the future as as maturity of, of those who are infected, their marriages, their relationship with the Lord, their relationship with their children inevitably declines? How can we fight this with sexual temptation and all other worldly temptations on every side? 
That's, that's our, our human perspective. But then like Caleb, we need to turn away from our human perspective and, and then look up and say what we have no hope of doing, God can do. The, the fight to remain faithful and pure in this world is impossible from a human perspective. But it's not impossible with God. God told the Israelites, he said, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And so it is with all the worries and the temptations that we face. They are too big for us. We are helpless in the face of them. But we are not alone. Not only can God help us through all of our struggles, he has promised that he will do so. He has promised that he will preserve his church forever through all the dangers that threaten it, including all the dangers of our wicked, sexually immoral society. And so, yes, we can do our best to protect ourselves and others from dangers and to fight against evil. But we must remember that we do not fight in our own strength and that we will not win the battle on our own. God will give us the strength and he will win the battle against evil. And so it's fine to be realistic, but too often we, we couch pessimism and lack of trust, and we call it being realistic. When we look at what's going on in the world or the hardships in our own families, and we feel so helpless. But when helplessness and anxiety threaten to cripple us, we need to turn away from ourselves and look in faith to God. He is with us. He is fighting our battles for us. Our enemies, Satan, the world, our own sinful flesh, they are too much for us, but they are nothing to God. And our greatest comfort as we face trouble and, and temptation and persecution and other suffering in this life is in Christ. Because it is, of course, above all our sins that seem so insurmountable to us. And the situation when we are deep in sin is hopeless. And yet God has already rescued us from all of our sins. He's already paid for them with Christ's precious blood. And our sins are condemned in Christ. And we have rescue and freedom in Christ. As Romans 8 puts it, For God has done what the law, weakened by sinful flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin. And so our flesh is weak and things are hopeless on our own, but we've already been set free in Christ. And so there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if God has already given us the victory over our greatest enemy, sin and Satan, he will certainly give us the complete victory in Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, when the realities of this world hit you, when you face terrible temptation or, or suffering or persecution in this world. Remember God's promises. Never forget that He is your strength. Trust in Him alone. And remember what God has already done for you in Christ and all the other precious promises that in the name of Christ He guarantees to you. Trust in the Lord and in His promises. And with Him fighting your battles, you will overcome Amen. So I invite you to rise uh, with me and we'll sing in response hymn number 12, the stanzas 1, 2, and 14.